1 Samuel chapter 21, if you'll join me there. You know, these chapters we're going to look at moving forward now in 1 Samuel 21, 22 this evening possibly as well, uh, really begin to show us uh, the reality that God indeed sometimes works in our lives through very unusual events. And certainly God uses ordinary things, but there are times on occasion where very unordinary things, uh, even despite maybe our own struggles at times, our own shortcomings, the times when we have moments of weakness, maybe when we falter a little bit and uh, aren't exercising as much faith in the Lord as we should, or perhaps being as faithful to trust Him or to seek the Lord in times in our lives, even when we waver a little bit. In all these things, God still manages to fulfill His purposes in our lives ultimately. I mean, we begin to see now this section in David's life as we come into chapter 21 and all the way really through to uh, really the end of first uh, Samuel where David really is is kind of living really we might say kind of living like a fugitive basically he's sort of uh, in exile living like a refugee in a lot of ways where he's been exiled from the court of King Saul because of the hatred and animosity and jealousy that's developed in Saul's heart uh, in his own uh, personal issues and and his uh, problems in his own life because of that he's developed this hatred to Towards David, this jealousy, this insecurity, and really has sought to take David's life on multiple occasions. And ultimately, David came to have to accept and realize through a series of events and attempts to assassinate him uh, that God really was sovereignly through all these things, not just protecting David. But as we saw in our chapter last week, as uh, the words of Joshua alluded to it, that the Lord was actually the one who was sending David away. Uh, and in a sense, taking David from his comfort zone, from uh, really, remember, he, he's pushed away from his family. He's pushed away from his circumstances and surroundings that he was familiar with. And the Lord basically now sends David away, sends him really for the next 10 years, uh, an extended time period for David, where God will develop him personally and help him to grow and learn how to depend upon the Lord in ways like he never had to before. And he kind of lives in some ways like almost we could say like a Robin Hood type existence now for the next 10 years as he's pushed out into a wilderness experience living we'll see in caves and uh, existence that is rather difficult as I said kind of on the run like a criminal of the state and living like a fugitive for a number of years but in all these things as Jonathan alluded to the recognition that in some ways really this was the sovereign hand of God wasn't easy it was a difficult separation it was a painful time in his life in some ways emotionally and even the circumstances became hard but these were developmental experiences that God was using in David's life to get David ready ultimately to assume the throne and to embrace the calling of God for his life as well as doing things to, in a sense, continue to work in Saul's life to ultimately remove Saul from the throne sovereignly that it was nothing other than God himself who did it. No one could say that David manipulated it. it was fully the circumstantial hand of God doing these things. And again, we see some rather unusual things, but we kind of come to a transition point now, as I said, where David now departs. Remember we saw last time 
that, that he's fleeing from his home. He embraces Jonathan one last time. They realize that the separation, this close friendship was going to have to come to an end now, that the Lord was leading them to part ways and Jonathan would go back to the court there among his uh, father's staff and there uh, David would now move off out into the wilderness, really sort of running for his life and his own preservation and safety. Now, with that backdrop, it says David verse 42 of chapter 20 arose and departed and then Jonathan went into the city so as David now departs out onto the run if you would like I said someone exiled like a fugitive it says verse 1 of chapter 21 David then came to Nob now Nob remember was one of the priestly cities so he travels a number of miles here from where he was he goes to the city of Nob to Ahimelech the priest and very likely, just in the same way that we saw David, remember at one point he went to seek out Samuel in Ramah at the school of the prophets, and he spent some time with Samuel. He conveyed to Samuel everything that was going on, the troubles he was having with Saul, and he kind of poured out his heart, and no doubt he sought out Samuel for just spiritual encouragement and accountability and sought out a spiritual mentor and leader in his life to try and help process some of his difficulties and what was going on. Here we see David kind of doing the same. Now he goes to one of the city of the priests. He goes to Ahimelech, the high priest at that time. And again, probably knowing that there's no better place to go when you're having a hard time than to go to the house of God. Uh, because if there's anywhere that hopefully we can find some help and we can find what's needed to sustain us, to strengthen us, to supply us with what we need as we head into a difficult time in our life there's no better place to go when troublesome waters come into our lives really then in some ways to do what david does which is to to go to the house of the lord to go and see a spiritual leader that could provide assistance to him so he now travels over to the priestly city of nob visits ahimelech the high priest and it says verse 1 ahimelech seeing david approaching was afraid the hebrew literally indicates trembling so he's very, in a sense, made uneasy. Uh, he, he feels a sense of, of being very concerned as he sees David. It says, when he met him and he said to him, to David, why are you alone and no one is with you? Now, again, keep in mind at this time, David has been serving among the staff, the uh, the the uh, you know individuals in in Saul's uh, palace, if you would, he's been doing military campaigns. So everybody knows that David is connected to King Saul. He's the king's son-in-law at this point. And, and as he shows up now to the city of Nob, Ahimelech the priest sees him approaching, and he w is wondering, no doubt. Listen, David's an important man. He's a military general. He's he's the son-in-law of the king of Israel. Where's the royal entourage? I mean, why why is coming alone probably I'm assuming at this point again David again remember because he's kind of on the run like a fugitive maybe he looks a little disheveled he looks a little weary maybe he looks even a little concerned and 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 there's something about Ahimelech that when he sees David something within him discerns very accurately what's wrong here uh, and he's a little bit concerned is something a matter and and he kind of just senses in his spirit something doesn't seem right for david to show up like this in a way that would be very untypical so he's discerning that something is wrong now something is very wrong 
what's going on between Saul and David is something very wrong, but he's not aware of any of these things. He's removed from those situations and the spear throwing and the assassination attempts waiting outside of David's house with hired assassins. And so he knows nothing of these things. He's naive of what's going on, but he senses that something is not right. Uh, and here's an occasion where David had an opportunity like he did with Samuel, to just share his heart very openly and to honestly say, well, uh, let me explain to you what's going on and, and this is how you can pray for me and this is what's going on and, and how, how, should, how would you recommend I handle this? And he could have sought counsel and said, could you inquire of God for me? Could we pray together? So he's asked this question and unfortunately here, David, I believe, has a moment of weakness. Rather than trusting the Lord, perhaps in the weariness of all the stress and the pressure and the circumstances, as I said, the Bible tells us so many times, even about the greatest men of God, the greatest women of God we see in Scripture, as we, we recognize, even the best of men are just men at best. And we all, you know, even though David was, the Bible says, a man known as the man who is after God's own heart, David was still a man who had feet of clay. He had plenty of moments of weakness. We see them. God does not hide them from us in the Bible. I believe this is one of those occasions. And just like you and I, we can be doing really well and then sometimes we just under stress or heavy emotions or difficulties or hardships, we have a moment of weakness and we kind of just you know, take a dip or take a detour a little bit. And I think that's what David does here because as he's asked this question, presented an opportunity, look what he does instead. He's so hesitant that something could happen. He basically lies here in verse 2. It says, so David said to Ahimelech the priest, well, uh, I wonder if there was a little of that or just he blurted it out. I don't know that he have his story there ahead of time. But he says, the king has ordered me on some business. Now, he didn't order him on some business. The king tried to assassinate him a few times. But David says here, he kind of fabricates this story. The king has sent me on some business and he said to me, do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or on which I have commanded you. So he basically says, look, the, the king sent me on a sort of a special mission. He's given me some business to take care of, but, but he wants it to be kept private. Now, by him saying that, he realizes that this man of God clearly is not going to push or probe further because basically David's kind of conveying the idea of, look, this is royal business and kind of like, uh, you know, him like if I told you, I'd kind of have to kill you. I mean, this is just, this is private here. He sent, and he knows if he says it in this way, Ahimelech is going to stop. He's not going to ask any further questions. So he very craftily not only lies and misleads him, but he does it in a way where he realizes he won't probe any further. He, kind of, he answers the question in a way where he knows how to kind of just cut off the inquisitiveness that would probably often follow. And the sad thing is, is sometimes when we, choose to be dishonest with people about what may be going on in our lives. Sometimes we're not just dishonest. Sometimes we get really good at knowing how to just kind of throw up the, 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 the shield, if you would, or to just cut things off in a way where we answer, not just inaccurately, we answer in a way very strategically. We realize we can stop a person from asking any further probing questions where maybe they might ask a next question in regards to like, no, come on, what's really going on? Or, and, and David here does that rather well. And we can kind of do this with our defense mechanisms sometimes if we want to just shut down and not talk anymore. And, and David does this here. And it's rather unfortunate, as I said, he's asked a question and he, rather than share honestly, 
makes up this story. And then David says to Ahimelech, and I've directed my young men to such and such a place. So the reason why you know, I, I'm alone here is, is I've sent my men over to another location and, and they're over here on this campaign and taking care of this business and, and, and that's why I'm alone here approaching you. Verse three, David says, now therefore, what have you on hand? Now David knows if you're gonna be a fugitive and on the run, from the state, from the government. I mean, keep in mind that if you put this in you know, modern vernacular, I mean, this would be like trying to be on the run from the U.S. government. And, you know, you kind of have the, the U.S. government and all of their forces and resources. I mean, he's running from King Saul, from the king of the nation. So he realizes, well, if you're going to be on the run, two things you certainly need. Number one, you need food. Because if you're going to run, you need some fuel to have the energy to keep running and to keep moving. So he realizes we need food. And he also realizes we need something to be able to defend ourselves. Because basically, he's on the run. He can't go back to the uh, palace armory and ask Saul if he could borrow some weapons. Yeah, can I borrow some weapons so that when you attack me, I'll you know, be able to hunker down and defend myself. So he realizes he needs this. And so he's going to probe now to see if he can acquire some of that stuff. He says, what do you have here in hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. So again, as I said, he goes to the house of God and he's thinking if there's anywhere where I might get some help, gain some assistance, it's among God's people, it's among God's house. And I think that's always the way it should be. If we're looking for help or assistance or the people in the world are looking for help or assistance, I would hope they'd come to God's people and to the house of God and say, you know, is there something you can supply me to, to help me? And he says, what do you have on hand? Well, verse four, the priest answered David and said, there is no common bread on hand, that is everyday ordinary bread that they would eat for their meals, but there is the holy bread now by the holy bread there he's referring to the show bread or the what was called the bread of presence which was the bread the 12 loaves remember that they would put there in the tabernacle in the holy place the first room as you went into the tabernacle worship tent uh, and those 12 loaves represented the 12 tribes of Israel in the presence of the Lord and so forth and this is what the priest is referring to here the holy bread he says, there's no common bread, but there is the holy bread if the young men, your men have kept themselves at least from women. The idea is they've kept themselves ceremonially clean, that they're at least ritually pure. And he's trying to set some standard if they're going to partake of this holy bread. And David answered the priest and said, truly women have been kept from us from about three days since I came out. And the vessels of the young men are holy and the bread is in effect now common, even though it was consecrated in the vessels this day. So the priest gave him holy bread for there was no bread there but the show bread which had been taken from before the Lord in order that hot bread may be put in its place the day when it was taken away. Now again, what, what this is referring to, I know it's a ways back, but Leviticus 24 is the, the section there where we get somewhat of a description of this telling us how what they were to do was to take, as I said, six loaves of bread in two rows. They were to put them there on the table of showbread in the presence of the Lord to be representative of God's people and the Lord's presence and fellowship together. And then every Sabbath day, they remember were to take the old loaves, they were to remove them and they were to replace them with fresh 
12 fresh loaves of bread. And the idea there was continually putting fresh bread there was an indication of continually having a, a fresh experience with God, that he's the bread of life and that there was a continual, you know, it, it wasn't stale, it wasn't old. There was something that was fresh, it was continuous. And when they removed the old 12 loaves, remember Leviticus 24 said that when they replaced that old bread after a week with hot new bread of new bread in its place that it says in Leviticus 24 that that bread was to be for Aaron and his sons and they shall eat it in the holy place for it's most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire so uh, that bread was considered holy or consecrated bread and it was a part of the provision for Aaron and his sons the priests and the priests were to be the ones who were able to be nourished by that bread and here what we have is this spiritual leader Ahimelech and David understanding the heart of God and that is this is that basically human need because they were hungry they were famished on the run that though there was no common bread to feed them that it would not have been the heart of God for him like to just say, well, let me just pray for you and hopefully God will supply you some bread because we can't break ceremony here and th we need to eat this bread because you know, we need to follow ritual and keep code and God cares more about code than he does about people. They understood the heart of God is that God esteems people more than he does ceremony. And that God esteems love more than he does maintaining ritual and religious observances. And so here these two men recognize, yes, it is ordinarily the ceremonial thing for the priest to eat this bread, but it's all that's available. So human need is more important than keeping religious ceremony. Now, it's interesting that Jesus, so impressed by what happens here between Ahimelech and David, references this very incident uh, in Matthew's gospel, chapter 12, it tells us this. Let me read the, the account. It says, At that time, Jesus went through at the grain fields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples were hungry on the Sabbath. And they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat them. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to Jesus, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful, and not lawful according to Mosaic law, but not lawful according to their religious traditions not lawful according to their codes of what, how they interpreted the Sabbath was to be kept and what was not work and what was work. Uh, and, and because they were plucking the heads of grain and rubbing them together and kind of like popping the kernels in their mouth as they're traveling through the fields, the Pharisees, because to show you these guys were a bunch of sin sniffers, I always read that story and think, what were they doing out in the fields? I mean, here they are, they, they're walking through the fields and Jesus is decided they're probably on their way maybe to Sabbath worship. I kind of see maybe they're on their way to worship the Sabbath day or they're on the way back from worship and like you and I, they're hungry. They say, hey, well, it's, well so they're kind of just eating and talking and fellowship and all of a sudden, ha, 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 the Pharisees pop out of the fields as the sin sniffers that they were. And what are you doing? You're breaking tradition. You're violating our religious codes and they start condemning them for what they're doing because they're breaking their ceremonial rituals. But Jesus said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered into the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. So Jesus references this emphasizing again this important thing that proved that God loves and cares for people and that the Sabbath was made for man 
not man for the Sabbath. God created the Sabbath rest and the Sabbath as a way to bless man, to give man something of refreshment. It wasn't something that was to become code and ceremony and ritual and observance, which they had made it to become. And to emphasize this reality that love always trumps over ritual. Love always trumps over religious ceremony and keeping of codes and customs. And sadly, a lot of this is spun in a wrong way for people among spiritual circles where people think it is more important to observe customs and rituals and religious observances and people are more concerned about keeping everything neat and orderly and observing every little religious ritual and tradition they have than they actually are about ministering to people than actually showing love to people and caring for people and being willing to, if at times, say, you know what, yeah, maybe this goes outside the custom of what we normally do, but it's about people. We need to love people here. We need to help people here. And this is the most important thing. And so Jesus uses this as a reference even in regards to his primary concern being people and caring for them. So David and his men are nourished by this bread as a way of sustaining them. And look what happens, verse 8. And this is important to keep in mind going forward. It says, excuse me, verse 7, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, that is, at the place where Ahimelech and David were, and his name was Doeg, or dogs, a better way to remember that guy, because that's what he is, an Edomite, which means he was a relative of Esau, the Edomites, the chief herdsman who belonged to Saul. Now, why he's there that day detained before the Lord, we don't really know. Some think he was there keeping a religious observance, a ceremonial vow or something. Clearly, whether the man was in the house of God or not, he has no heart for God. And it just goes to show you again, people can be there among the house of God, among the things of God. And it doesn't mean their heart is having an experience with God because this guy is an incredibly unhealthy evil wicked individual who has murderous intentions he's nothing but a problem starter and someone who does nothing more than hurt and destroy people which is just a very interesting so he sees david there that day with ahimelech the things that transpire between the two of them to a degree because he's going to report it later on we'll see in chapter 22 but again take notice doeg the edomite one of saul's uh, servants is there and again as i said just because it's the house of god listen does not mean that there's not going to be at times the presence still of unhealthy people because i'll tell you something ladies and gentlemen unhealthy people even come into the church with unhealthy attentions and unhealthy agendas and unhealthy heart conditions and this is what doeg is he's there among the people of god that day but we see that his heart is nothing other than very unhealthy in the things he ultimately does. So David, verse 8, then said to Ahimelech, is there not here on hand also a spear and a sword? Second thing he's thinking about, I need some, some weapons to defend ourselves. For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. So he, he continues to fabricate this story here. Hey, I didn't have time to grab a weapon because I had to get off in a quick hurry because the king's business, I had to leave in haste, so I didn't have time to grab my weapons. So uh, do you have any weapons on hand here uh, that somehow we could potentially borrow to keep ourselves safe? Verse 9, the priest said, 
Well, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, where, where is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, he says. If you want that, certainly take it with you, for there is no other except that one here. Uh, they didn't use to make it a practice of having an armory at the house of God with all kinds of weapons and swords and shields and so forth. So he says, if you want that one sword, take it. You, certainly you're entitled to it. And David said, perfect. There is none like it. Give it to me. So uh, interestingly enough to see here, apparently after David killed Goliath, remember with the stone, went down, he took Goliath's sword, cut off Goliath's head with his own sword. It seems David dedicated that sword to the Lord. And he didn't use it. He kind of dedicates, here it is, and it's wrapped in linen, in a linen by the ephod and in the house of God with the like the priest. And I think David probably surrendered it over saying, look, I don't want to use this thing. This is, the Lord gave me that victory there. And, he, and I think he probably recognized this is like a trophy under the glory of God of what he did when I triumphed over Goliath that day. And lo and behold, now that sword is there and is available to him what is interesting is as David asked for a weapon the priest says to him the sword of Goliath the Philistine whom you killed is the only sword here now you would think that hearing that the sword of Goliath the Philistine who you killed would trigger David's memory to the reality that I mean I should be trusting the Lord you would think it would trigger him to the reality of instead of lying and making up stories and kind of caving in the way that I am. Wait a minute. I, God helped me defeat a giant. God helped me to succeed against all odds. God preserved me and protected me with no armor. I had nothing. I walked out of there with no armor, with my sling and a few smooth stones. And the first stone, God sped up the RPM, sunk it into that guy's head, and I ran down there. And, and you would think that this would trigger David's faith and make him realize what he was actually doing. I mean, I, I just can't help but to think how it's interesting how God has this be the sword that's there and the priest to say this in this way. So David now gladly takes this sword and then he begins to, to move on quickly to a new location. And the shocking thing is where he goes next. Look at verse 10. Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul. So he's still on the run. And then he went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now remember, Gath is one of the five capital cities of who? The Philistines. <laughs> Gath, Ekron. Ashdod, these were the capital cities of the Philistine people. So now David goes to Philistine territory. And of all places, do you remember specifically where Goliath was from? Gath. So he goes to Gath in Philistine territory with Goliath's sword with him. I mean, you think, uh, David, did you really pray through that one? I mean, you really think that? Through? I mean, I can only help to think that what perhaps he's thinking, unless again, as I said, in moments of weakness like us, sometimes in our moments of weakness, we don't reason things out real well. Maybe we, when we don't pray, we don't seek the Lord. And that could be this. Or is David in his mind just reasoning as he's trying to kind of like figure things out in his flesh and he's thinking, you know, listen, I'm going to take my chances here because the one place where Saul definitely wouldn't come looking for me is in Philistine territory. So if I can just get the Philistine territory, Saul's not going to hunt me down in Philistine territory. And so I'll take my chances 
in Gath, where I killed their giant Goliath with Goliath's sword strapped to my side, I'll take my chances there rather than be somewhere where Saul would come track me down. So he goes now to the area of Gath among the Philistines and the servants of Achish, the king there, said to him, wait a minute, is this not David, the king of the land? Very interesting. They actually saw the hand of God upon David, even the enemies of God saw David as the future king of Israel. They, they saw more of David than what David was thinking of himself in these times of doubt and lack of faith and unbelief. Is this not David, the, the future king of the land? Did they not sing of him uh, and, and in their dances saying Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? So David had no idea how far his popularity had reached. That, that all the way to the land of the Philistines, they had heard about this you know, a song that the people sang in celebration of how David was so victorious because God was blessing all that he was doing when he went on a campaign. So David now realizes, uh-oh, this is not good. They know who I am. They recognize who I am. So David, it says, verse 12, took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So now he's terrified thinking, oh my goodness, I chose to do this. What did I get myself into? Where am I at? Have you ever did that before? What was I thinking? What, what, what was I thinking? And now he finds himself in a spot where he's thinking, I don't know how I got here or why I'm here. What am I doing? What was I thinking? And now he's being exposed. And interesting, he's being exposed by the ungodly. It's always a bad thing when the ungodly are identifying who we are and that we're somewhere maybe where we don't belong and they're pointing out to us wait aren't aren't you david aren't you one of god's people aren't you what are you doing here <laughs> what are you doing hanging out among us what are you doing uh, in our midst you you seem out of where you're supposed to be out of the will of, and and so david now begins to get very terrified probably because he realizes he's not really where perhaps he should have been and this wasn't a very wise choice now, some psalms were written during this time. Again, if you're a note taker, uh, particularly Psalm 56 and Psalm 34. Psalm 56 indicates to us that what seems that happened is that when David went into this area, that they recognized David and they actually took David into custody. So now David's really nervous and that's why he's greatly afraid because they took David into custody. What am I going to do? They've taken me into custody. What's this king going to do when it's reported to him that I'm in his land after what I did to his great champion, Goliath, by slaying him? So look what happens, verse 13. So David changed his behavior before them and he pretended madness like he was insane or out of his mind in their hands. He scratched the doors of the gate and let his saliva fall down his beard. So he's scratching the doors of the gates. He's acting like he's foaming at the mouth, like he's someone who is out of his mind. And again, this is a very undignified thing, especially because the Hebrews took very seriously, not just the Hebrews, but a lot of the ancient people in general, to do anything with the beard. So this is very undignified to have, you know, dr just spittle and foam just running down his mouth. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, just imagine. What, and you think, is this David? What? Well, this is a far stretch from the oil of the Lord's anointing running down his head and his beard. Now he's scratching things and acting like an animal and foaming at the mouth. I mean, in some ways, isn't that strangely encouraging when you think you act a little off as a Christian? 
I mean, hopefully you haven't scratched doors and let saliva run down your face in front of people. And David here, he, he's just thinking, anything I can do to just make them not harm me or put me to death is his idea. And the interesting thing is, watch, it works. Verse 14, then Achish said to his servants, look, you see, this man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I a need of a madman that you've brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house that is, you know, among my palace? He's saying, look, I, I got enough crazy people in government. <laughs> I don't need another one. I don't need another person to have to take care of. So the king says, look, this guy is out of his mind. He obviously has very severe issues. I don't care who he is. What did you bring him to me for? He is nothing other than a lot to have to take care of. And basically, the idea is, is just get him out of here. Cut him loose. Send him away. We don't want to have to deal with him and with whatever seems to be going on in his life. Again, they, they, a lot of times in this culture, they believed when someone was like this that they were potentially possessed by spirits and so forth. So uh, this gives, interestingly enough, an opportunity for David to be delivered. And David is actually freed by this. Now, here's the thing that astonishes me. When you read Psalm 56 and Psalm 34, it indicates that in this time when all this is going on, that David is still crying out to the Lord. And when you read those Psalms, you can see David saying, Lord, deliver me and, and my enemies want to destroy me. And he's actually praying and crying out to the Lord. These Psalms were written during the course of this time and about these events and the Lord does deliver him. So two things go through my mind. First of all, could it actually be that the Lord, as David's crying out to the Lord and praying, Lord, what do I do? I can't believe I got myself into this mess and here I am in custody of the enemy and Lord, what am I going to do to get out of here? How are you going to deliver me out of here? I don't know. Did the Holy Spirit say, act like you're out of your mind? I don't know. God told Isaiah and Jeremiah to do some really odd things if you read the prophets. I mean, at times God told them to do some very unusual, and you think, I mean, come on, God, what would God tell him to scratch the walls and let's spit? I don't know. Maybe God was saying, you know what, David, absolutely humble yourself and I'll deliver you. Because it was incredibly humbling and undignified the way that, so maybe God was saying, David, yeah, this is what I want you to do. Oh, Lord, that, that's going to be embarrassing. Act like a, I'm out of my mind. Yeah, David. You totally humble yourself and it'll work and I'll deliver you. And sometimes humility and brokenness is the path to deliverance, is it not? Or is it just that David was doing these things and outwardly it looks like David is off the hook and out to lunch and you're thinking this guy has lost it. He's gone over the deep end. There ain't no coming back for this guy. And the reality is, is what was going on outwardly that you could see in his life was not a perfect representation of what was really going on in this man's heart. And that though outwardly a lot of really bizarre things were happening that were out of tune with what might be right and healthy, that inwardly there was still something happening in David's heart between him and God because those Psalms indicate he's communicating to God during this time. And I think that's a good reminder as well because sometimes we may look at what's going on in somebody's life outwardly and we think, oh my goodness, what is she doing or what is he doing? And the reality is, is we may have no idea what may be going on between them and God personally. And there may indeed be something going on that's very sincere in their heart and we need to trust God's sovereignty with that. So David is able to escape as the result of these rather bizarre circumstances and chapter 22 says he then therefore departed 
and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So now he goes and finds lodging in Adullam. Adullam means refuge, and ultimately he'll find out that this cave is a refuge, but God is his refuge. Now again, if you're a note taker, a couple Psalms were written during this time in the cave. Psalm 57, if you want to read that one, and Psalm 142 specifically are told to us that they were written during this time when David's dwelling in a cave. Now what's a cave? It's a dark place. It's a dreary place. It's a cold, hard, lonely existence. But yet this was part of the sovereign plan of God. David's in a cave. He's in a dark, lonely, hard, cold, isolated, uncomfortable existence. But yet God is using even that as a divinely appointed experience for a time as a cave dweller to do things in David's life, to work out his ultimate plan in David's life, even as sometimes he may appoint those things for our lives as well. And so David now, he escapes. He goes to the cave of Adullam. And look what happens. Amazing. Watch this. So when his brothers and his father's house heard it, they went down to him there. Do you see what that says? He goes to the cave. And who's the first people to show up at the cave? His family. Do you remember what his family thought of him in the earlier chapters? Nobody liked David. They all overlooked David. But it was while he was in his cave-like existence that something changed in their hearts that they decided, you know what? David seems to be right with the Lord and, and, and perhaps our existence is now threatened as his family. So we need to go support him. And, and now this family are the first ones who come and support him in the midst of this cave-like existence. His brothers, his father's household, his family comes, and that's what families should do anyway, rallied together in hard times. And, and, and so they come now to the cave, down there to him. And then verse 2 says, And then everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him, just the kind of people you want to come when you're already depressed yourself, right? Living in a cave. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. So keep in mind, at this time, things in the kingdom are miserable anyway. Saul is losing his mind. He's oppressing the people. He's under a distressing spirit. He's heavily taxing the people. That's why lots of people were in debt, no doubt. They were struggling to get by. So all these people, it says, everyone who was in great debt, struggling financially, you know, struggling to make an existence under Saul's cruel rulership, those who were in distress, the idea indicates that they were just heavily oppressed or under great stress and pressure in their lives. And thirdly, all those who were discontented. The Hebrew means literally bitter of soul. The idea is that they were completely just dissatisfied. They were miserable. All these people who were in debt and under heavy stress and miserable, discontented people, they all start trickling down and going out to live with David in a cave and to become supporters of David. It says 400 men at this time go down there and David becomes their leader over them. And they begin to rally now behind David, the rejected king, be yet the one they knew who was the anointed king. And here's what's very interesting. I mean, talk about a group of people. You're thinking, this is the last kind of people I want to come join. My life is hard enough. But here's what happens. These 400 individuals who were in debt, discontented, and distressed, by spending time with David and letting David be their captain, these men, their lives are revolutionized. 
These become, later on, those who become David's mighty men, mighty men of valor. And there was nothing about their life. They were a bunch of individuals who were in debt, in distress, and discontented. Their lives were a mess. But when they went and spent time with David, by being with David under David's leadership, David was able to lead them in such a way that ultimately by spending time with David and supporting David in that condition and just saying, our lives are a mess, but we'll follow you. Their lives became changed and they became victors and champions and mighty men of valor, incredible character and incredible warriors. And, and I look at this story and I think, man, what a beautiful picture, is it not, of exactly really what it's like with us coming to Jesus. I mean, you look at that picture. That, that's kind of a really good picture of, of, of us coming to Jesus. Jesus is the rejected king, but yet the anointed king. And, and, and so many times we have to depart from maybe what the world has to offer. And, and that's like much of us. You know, we were in debt and discontent and in distress, some form of one or all three of those combined. And that's what caused us to say, you know what? I am miserable. I have no, I'm just, I'm going to go and seek out this one who seems to be the rightful king. And to just let him take over control. And as a result, we spend time with Jesus. And he takes us from a bunch of people who are distressed and discontented and miserable and all kinds of debts and problems in our lives. And he transforms us. And he gives us new lives. And he makes us new individuals who become more than conquerors, the Bible says, in Christ Jesus. Though we had a debt of sin and life had made us distressed and Jesus changes us. So they rally now to David under his leadership. Verse 3 says, Then David went from there to Mizpah, over to Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab and his parents, it seems, dwelt there, it says, with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now, that could have been upwards to a number of years to almost a 10-year time period. Again, the Bible tells us, honor your mother and father. And perhaps David at this point, recognizing the age of his parents, that they can't travel and move around and be on the run and live this Robin Hood existence like fugitives, he's thinking, I can't subject my parents to that. So instead of just thinking about himself and saying, look, that's on you, David does the honorable thing and he says, I need to make arrangements for my parents in this condition. I can't be there to help them. So he takes them over, interesting, to the area of Moab, again, out of Israelite territory and perhaps, remember, there was a family connection with David to the Moabite people because his great-great-grandmother, remember Ruth, was a Moabitess. And so God here orchestrates something through time and history where now David says, perfect, I can put my parents over in Moab. Nobody would think to go there. They're enemies of Israel and they'll be safe there. And maybe there was some family connection because his great-great-grandmother was a Moabitess and he knows someone there and he, he takes them over. So there's some dynamic of a connection. He goes before the king and he says, please, can my parents have refuge with you under your kingdom because I'm in a situation where I'm fleeing and running for my life. And he is able to make this arrangement for them in this very beautiful way. I love verse three, the wording the Holy Spirit gives to us there. He says, please let my mother and father be with you till I know what God will do for me. I love that. Until I know what God will do for me. David knew that God was going to do something for him. 
but he didn't know what God was going to do for him. I think he's rebounding here. He's come through this process. He's turned the corner. The Lord's given him victory. And this is David's true color starting to come. He says, he says I know God's going to do something for me. This looks bad. I'm living in a cave. I'm running. But we, I don't know how it's all going to happen. But he says, I know God's going to do something for me because that's who he is and he's faithful. God's going to do something. He's going to work for me. But he says, I don't know what he's going to do. That part I got to live out by faith. And he says, until I know what God's going to do, I want to make this arrangement until God makes it evident what he's going to do for me in my life. And you know, those are, I've had underlined in my Bible and maybe a worthwhile phrase to underline Till I know what God will do for me. God is going to do something for you. Maybe you're facing it and, and there's a sense of, well, I, I, just, I don't know what tomorrow holds or I don't know how it's going to work out. or I, I've never been down this path before. I've never been you know, kind of in this situation. David had never lived like this before. This was all brand new to him. This was scary. It was hard. It was difficult even for David. And he says, I, I've never done this before, but I know God will be with me and I know God's going to do things for me. He's going to take care of me. He's going to make it all work out for me. And he says, I'm going to just have to wait and see what God does for me until I see what he does for me. And I tell you, have that heart of faith and expectation. I'm just going to wait to see what God's going to do for me. Because God will do things for you. We have to just wait him out and trust him and walk with him until we see what God will do for us. So he brought them there, left them. And the prophet Gad, verse 5, then said to David, Don't stay in the stronghold. Depart now and go to the land of Judah. So David again departed and went over to the forest of Hereth in the area of the Judean, uh, forest-like sort of Judean wilderness area of Hereth. So now the, the prophet of God says to David, David, I know you've kind of gotten settled here, but listen, you need to depart from the stronghold now. And the stronghold would be a safe place, indicates somewhere secure. But again, God is speaking to David saying, David, don't stay where it's secure and comfortable. Depart and go somewhere else. And sometimes God does that. You know, at this point, I'm sure the biggest thing on David's mind was security. I just want security. <laughs> a stronghold, I like that idea. Stronghold, safety. I just security makes me feel secure. And God says, no, go. I want you to depart from your security and go to this land over here and that's what I'm leading you to do. And so here he gets a word from the Lord to depart, to go over to the land of Judah. Now he's living among the forest, the Judean hillside and the wilderness of Judea. And when Saul heard that David and the men with him had been discovered and Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand, and all his servants standing about him. Notice you can tell this guy's incredibly insecure. All his servants with him. And what's he got? He's got a spear in his hand. A mark of insecurity in this guy. Saul said to his servants, Here now, you Benjamites, will that son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? He's like a, you know, like a many, unfortunately, you know, corrupt politicians. He says, Look, is he able to give you the pork and the incentives that I can if you keep me in charge? Can he give you this and that if you keep him as your king? He's saying, He can't supply for you what I can if you let me continue to be your ruler. All of you have conspired against me. There's no one who reveals to me that my own son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. For there is not one of you, look at this language, verse 8. There's not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait 
as it is this day. So again, there's not one of you who feels sorry for me. Oh, poor Saul. I mean, just everything's about Saul. So insecure. I mean, nobody feels sorry for me. This guy's the epitome of unhealthy insecurity. Well, here's the situation. Remember what happened? Look at verse 9. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul. He says, wait a minute. I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab. And he inquired of the Lord and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. So Doeg speaks up and he says, wait a minute, I I know where he's at. I saw him with Ahimelech, the high priest. He not only gave him provisions, gave him a sword, but Ahimelech actually was conspiring with him and he sought counsel and told David where to go. So he tells a little bit of the story, but he doesn't have all the right information. So he adds a little and he makes Ahimelech look like a conspirator with David and no doubt he knew this would make Saul very happy to be able to track David down so Saul verse 12 verse 11 and 12 excuse me called for Ahimelech right away and Ahimelech came to him in verse 12 Saul said here now son of Ahitab and he answered here I am my lord and Saul said why have you conspired against me he indicts him you and the son of Jesse and that you've given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day so Ahimelech answered the king and said who among all your servants is as faithful as David and it was also the king's son-in-law he's your most faithful servant he's your son-in-law king he says he goes out and does your bidding and is honorable in your house did I then begin to inquire of God for him far be it from me he says look I had no idea that this was going on He said, I was completely innocent of all this. He's trying to explain what happened. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to his house of my father, for your servant knew nothing of all this that was going on between the two of you, little or much. And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's house. And the king said to the guards who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord. Saul has lost his mind. No reverence for anything now. Murder the priests, he says, because their hand also is with David and because they knew when he fled and they didn't tell it to me or report it. But the servants of the king had some reverence left. Notice they wouldn't lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. But the dog would, of course. Verse 18, the king said to Doag, you turn and kill the priests. So Doag the Edomite turned and struck the priests and killed on that day 85 men who were linen ephod also Nob, the city of the priests. He then also struck with the edge of the sword both men, women, children, nursing infants, oxen, donkeys, and sheep with the edge of the sword. So this guy Doeg, who was hanging out at the house of the Lord, who reports what happened and tells a little fabricated story, he then says, I'll gladly take care of that for you, king. Look at verse 18. It says he killed by himself 85 priests 85 religious leaders how long did that take with a sword murdering with a sword 85 servants of god no reverence and then on top of that he goes to the city of the priests and then he massacres the entire city men women children it says nursing infants murders everyone now one of the sons of ahimelech the son of ahitab abiathar managed to escape and flee to David. And Abiathar told 
David that Saul had killed the Lord priests. What a heavy story to have to report, the only survivor. And David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not fear. For he who seeks my life seeks your life, but with me you shall be safe. So again, David here, notice, what does he feel? an incredible sense of responsibility for what happened. Because David was not completely forthright with Ahimelech in regards to what was going on, he, in a sense, made him all the more vulnerable and caused him to be misjudged. At least if he would have been forthright with Ahimelech, perhaps Ahimelech could have said, you know what, listen, if that's what's going on and Saul's out of his mind and God's taken his anointing off of Saul and has put it upon you, I'm a servant of the Most High God. I want to be in tune with what God's doing. I'll take my chances. David, take me with you. Take me with you and take my family with you. But because David chose in not trusting God to try and handle things in his flesh and he made up a little story and all that kind of stuff, David feels a huge sense now of responsibility. He says, oh my goodness, I knew when Doeg was there that day that was going to be trouble. And he says, all that death, all that loss, all that pain, all that, that happened, he says, I, I, I feel so responsible for that. And his heart's just broken over that. It's just a tremendous reminder to us that, again, the times when we make you know, foolish decisions, that, that a lot of times it doesn't just impact us, but the impact it can have upon others. And so here David does what he can and at least calls Abiathar to join him. He says, stay with me. What I can do is make the best out of what's transpired. He says, you stay with me and I'll keep you safe. Let's stand together.